Hey everyone, you are listening to Vegan Theology. This is episode 16. It's Kevin speaking. Hi everybody. Hi Kevin. Hey Sarah, how are you? Very good. Yeah. Excited to be here with you, looking yeah. at your beautiful face. Oh, thanks. Likewise. <laughs> to talk about animal theology. Yeah, this is a good book. I'm, I'm so happy we're reading it. Like we've mentioned, there's so many insights that Andrew Lindsay brings up, and I think that this challenges normal anthropocentric theology. I think the more I read this, the more I realize a lot of our theology in the Christian tradition is very anthropocentric, mm. and more needs to be done with regard to creation care and mm. how we treat animals. I think in this chapter especially, it really came up for me and I really started looking for books that talk about the value of creation. And I think he uses the term doctrine of creation. I feel like mm -hmm. some more scholarly works need to be written on not just creation care, but the value of creation as it is. Yeah. Not the commodification of creation. Something that we as stewards of this creation have done and possibly done inappropriately. Yeah. There's been so many amazing concepts that I've really enjoyed latching on to and, yeah. and thinking through his chapter on humans as a servant species. Yeah. And in that same chapter, he talked about the passability of God, that God actually suffers wherever there's suffering. God is suffering as right. well. So that was chapter three. I think that this chapter, while he doesn't explicitly reference those concepts, I had those in mind as I was mm. reading this, that what we're doing to animals is causing not only creation to suffer, not only animals to suffer, but God is suffering. And, and that we need to be remembering that we're here to actually be the servant species, right. not the exploitative species. This is just not the way it's supposed to be. What we have normalized or what we think is normal mm -hmm. for us in our lives is not really the norm. And we don't necessarily know, you know, we we're born into a broken world. So we don't really know right. what a perfect thriving creation would look like. Yeah, I think we both felt because of the nature of the way this chapter is, the logic of it, we kind of... I feel like we need to encapsulate the summary at the beginning here. Yeah. We can just kind of present a roadmap of what this chapter is trying to accomplish. Yeah. At the outset. So this chapter is titled Animal Experiments as Ungodly Sacrifices. Scientific research on animals is something that is intentionally not talked about a lot, kind of kept a little bit hidden mm. off the radar because yeah. it is there is something disturbing about breeding animals specifically to be experimented on while they're fully conscious, while they're alive, basically torturing them for their entire life. There's something especially evil, I think, about vivisection. Right. Again, I mean, it's, I want to be careful when I try to rank most evil, least evil. You know, it's all evil, wh right. whether we're talking about animals for food, animals for entertainment, animals for fashion, animals for science. It's all evil, in my opinion, in Lindsay's right. opinion. You hope that an animal that's being raised for food is going to be killed very quickly, in the most quick way possible. Hmm. But an animal that's kept in a laboratory is kept alive, you know, and they're tortured. And it just feels right. especially evil. Vivisection is the experimentation on animals 
while they're alive. Mm -hmm. And it sure seems like torture. Right. A lot of us are oblivious that we may live in a town where there's a university that has an animal laboratory. And Well, it comes back to, again, our charge as image bearers, as viceroys of creation. Yeah. Thankfully, perhaps, Lindsay does not get detailed. He doesn't get into the details of vivisection, of what actually is happening to these animals. I mean, I remember when I was reading Peter Singer's Animal Liberation, I kind of got stuck and never got, never went back to the book. I got stuck on the part of vivisection and animal experimentation for science. And it was so upsetting to me. It broke my heart so much that I wasn't able to go back to the book. I, I haven't finished the book. Lindsay makes the choice to not get graphic or detailed mm. with, with what's happening in scientific laboratories. But he does still definitely make us think about what's going on. Right. So a roadmap for where this chapter is going to take us. Lindsay begins by pointing out that he's using traditional Christian doctrine, well-accepted, well-established Christian doctrine to support there's intrinsic value in God's creation. And that that has obvious implications that we need to no longer ignore. Right. And he calls this, as Kevin mentioned, the doctrine of creation. And then from there, he takes us to Old Testament animal sacrifices. And the reason he does that is because, you know, either subconsciously or consciously in, in humans' minds, we could justify possibly this idea of scientific animal research as animal sacrifices for the betterment of humankind. Mm. And since... That's a familiar Judeo-Christian concept in our brains that animals were sacrificed for the betterment of humans mm. or to help humans in some way, that somehow it's all justified. Mm. Um, but then he takes us to Christ's sacrifice, his self-sacrifice, and how Christ turned the sacrificial system on its head in so many ways, and so that we need the Christian understanding of sacrifice, which would no longer justify sacrificing animals right. for humans. And we'll get into that. Mm -hmm. And the understanding, the proper understanding of Christ's sacrifice leads us really nicely into his critique of experimenting on animals. Yeah, all right. His first subheading is the theological basis of the value of creation. And he quotes here, from the working group, which is a new concept for me, that there he quotes a few different working groups yeah. that churches have set up in in history to study specific topics. And so the working group set up in 1971 by the then Archbishop of Canterbury to investigate the relevance of Christian doctrine to the problems of man in his environment. So again, in 1971, the church was working on the problems of man in his environment. Mm. And he quotes from that report, creation exists for God's glory. That is to say, it has a meaning and worth beyond its meaning and worth as seen from the point of view of human utility. It is in this sense that we can say that it has intrinsic value. To imagine that God has created the whole universe solely for man's use and pleasure is a mark of folly. Lindsay hits four characteristics of God to support his doctrine of creation. 
And this is kind of ground we have covered in previous chapters, yeah. I would say, which reminds us that these were lectures given. This was a s- part of a series of lectures. And so I'm sure when you're giving a lecture and you don't know who shows up on any given day, right. you have to you feel like you have to reestablish your some foundation. Right. And so some of this we've heard before. So we're going to kind of gloss over this first part. But just to touch on it, he goes over God the creator, essentially that God is good. So, of course, God's creation is good and has value to God, all of creation. God incarnate, that God becomes a fleshly creature, becoming the brother of all flesh, which means that all fleshly creatures now have commonality with God and clearly matter to God. Then God the reconciler, that God is going to reconcile everything that has been broken by sin, not just humans, but all of it. All of creation. And then God the Redeemer, basically that nothing will be left incomplete. Everything will be redeemed. So it's a beautiful theology. Right. And again, it's taken straight from traditionally understood characteristics of God. This is not unheard of theology. I liked uh, here at the bottom of page 100, he said, I would not want to argue that the particular way in which I have presented these central doctrines would be agreeable to all Christians, but I hope I have shown enough for it to be clear that the appeal to the value of creation can be supported by orthodox Christian belief, and indeed that these doctrines taken together require such an affirmation. It will be seen that I have not based this conclusion on any particular strand within the biblical tradition or upon exegesis of particular texts or on one or more characterizations of theological work. Rather, in taking the nexus of doctrines together, each one relating to and informing the other, we are on much surer grounds. I judge in claiming to interpret accurately mainstream Christian theology. So for me, what he's basically saying is this is not your proof text kind of theology. Right. No, it's, it's, I feel like it's what we've been saying in this podcast about a holistic, consistent, coherent theology. Like when you read the biblical text cover to cover, you put it all together you're going to come out with a more robust theology. And I feel like that's one thing that he is doing for us, mm-hmm. reading this book on animal theology and focusing and noticing how he is reading the biblical text in light of, and Christian doctrine in light of animal theology. It, it is making our normative theology more robust. Because it's considering way more. It's considering the whole of creation. Versus, just to be clear, versus what a lot of us, speaking for myself, I think speaking for both of us sitting at this table, a lot of us were brought up with theology that was very proof text. What is the chapter and verse for that doctrine? Right. How it proved to me, like, so if somebody said to me, show me in the Bible where God says we should be vegan right now. Right. 
no, this isn't proof texting. This is taking all of it together and being consistent with it. Right. All of the doctrines that we hold aren't equally supported with the same amount of chapter and verse proof text, so to speak, if, if we want to say it like that. So I think it is. You have to see this cohesive whole and, and, and everything else we've already talked about, that, that, that the biblical text is in some ways a snapshot at a few points in history. Let's put it that way. Yeah. If I could, I'd like to go back a page. Sure. Just because there was a quote that b- both struck me and st- struck you, Kevin. It came up in conversation right. that I just, I think it, there's something there that's yeah, worth, powerful worth reading. Yeah. Verse. It's a powerful. <laughs> yeah. We're proof texting now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Lindsay chapter <laughs> yeah, six. Yeah, chapter verse. six verse. <laughs> page 99. Yeah. yeah. Just the way he says it is pretty cool. We are again led inescapably to the notion that creation has value. God, so Christians affirm, is determined to bind him herself to creation in order to save it from the worst possibilities of self-destructiveness. The worst possibility is self-destructiveness. That God... Yeah, God binds him or herself. Uh, this is just so interesting. I just love this language. Right. God binds him or herself to creation in order to save it from the worst possibilities, self-destructiveness. That that is such an interesting way of describing sin. Right. That at its essence, all sin is self-destructiveness, whether we're destroying ourselves through destroying the planet or we're destroying ourselves through destroying our relationships or we're destroying ourselves through addiction or right. or capitalism yeah like yeah that god wants to save creation from self-destruction mm. <laughs> yeah and if you remember when we were in bible college there was always talk of the holy spirit kind of holding things at bay yeah. even though there are wars and all this evil happening in the world some would suggest that, well, if the Holy Spirit wasn't present holding some of the, I don't want to say evil at bay, things would be much worse. Right. And that's just crazy to hear, crazy to think about that in light of how bad things are already, mm-hmm. it could be much worse. No, I mean, I think, I think it's really interesting hmm. that God is interested in helping us not to destroy ourselves. Right. Okay, so... Lindsay, at this point, gives us four moral implications. And I just want to read through those four. I think they support the overall argument that he's making. Yeah, this is great. Number one, if creation has value to God, then it should possess value to human beings. Wow. Okay. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, which, again, this just seems to be something that's missed and not talked about, not taught, Mm. not preached. Uh, Number two, the theological value of creation, thus elaborated, should be seen to be distinct from humans' estimation of their own value and utility, as this may be variously defined from time to time. So to me, what that's partially saying is that humans are not the measure of what is valuable and how valuable things are, because that can waver from time to time for one reason. Right. Number three, the theological purpose of creation. So number two is a theological value. Number three is the theological purpose of creation should also be seen 
to be distinct from humans' estimation of the purpose and significance of creation. So the value of creation and the purpose of creation, really not up to us. Right. And then number four, if creation has value and should have value for humans, it should follow that humans cannot claim a right to absolute value within creation. Yeah, it's just like this is what we need to hear. This is what is missing in so much of our theology. Well, and it reminds me, I believe we were reading John Walton. He's an Old Testament scholar. We've talked about him in earlier podcasts where we are image bearers no matter what. Whether we're good custodians or good stewards of creation or whether we're bad stewards mm. of creation, we're still stewards. Mm. You know what I mean? And so we may not, we're still the image bearers. We're still the viceroys of this creation. And if we're messing it up, then, you know, we may have some answering to do. Yeah. And so let's just say we're not clear and we're, however you want to say it, sin or we're not following God's priorities or God's will, as many like to say, and we're executing our own will. And based on these four moral implications here, he's really making a distinction between what God's will might be and what humans' wills might be. And I think all I'm saying is it's unfortunate because we still have that power as image bearers. And if we're wielding corrupt power, then the implications for creation and for animals and for ourselves is is bad. Self-destruction. Self-destruction, so. Mm. Yeah, I like how you use the word custodian because he quotes, again, from another working party, this one, uh, Animals and Ethics Working Party. This report was convened by the then Dean of Westminster in 1977, and they wrote... On a theistic understanding of, of creation, such as the Christian entertains, it is a mistake to suppose that all animal life exists only to serve humankind, or that the world was made exclusively for man's benefit. Man's estimate of his own welfare should not be the only guideline in determining his relationship with other species. In terms of this theistic understanding, Man is custodian of the universe he inhabits with no absolute rights over it. Hmm. And this reminds me of your, like another metaphor you mentioned. Yeah. When I read that, I thought of a property manager. We have many of those where we live here in Montana. We have, this is a very seasonal um, recreational area. With all the tourism here, there's a lot of there are a lot of rental properties and there are a lot of wealthy people that come in for Christmas and skiing and maybe fly fishing and then they own properties here and then they leave and go back to wherever they're from. And so they hire a lot of people to maintain their properties. And I was just thinking about that as, as us as property managers of creation. Like we don't own the property maybe, but we're expected to maintain the property in the same way and with care that the property owner would expect and maintain oh yeah and so call us image bearers calls property managers of creation stewards of creation custodians of creation whatever metaphor you want to use there's an expectation yeah that we are going to maintain it the way the owner would maintain it right and i think it's a kind of a nice metaphor because while the owner is perhaps unreachable 
they're not here. We as property managers, of course, as it, with any metaphor, it, it does down. it does break down yeah. <laughs> if you take it literally. But the idea of creativity and having to problem solve and having to be oh, I didn't expect the pipes to burst mm. this during this cold snap. Uh oh, I need to get creative and and fix this and figure out how to make sure this doesn't happen again. Right. You know, so there's an element where we have to we can't just oh I'm not I'm not going to touch it. You know, we have to be in there making sure that things are being maintained and things are being Right. You like, can't just leave it alone. That you the actually, raccoons haven't right. moved into the chimney or exactly. you know, so there's a way of creativity and problem solving that is required. Of us. Yeah, it's funny. It, it reminds me, I, I had a coworker whose husband bought a brand new truck and he loved his truck and he loved it so much that he would just clean it and he wouldn't really drive it. And eventually, apparently, the axles on the truck developed dry rot and he took it in to get it looked at and they said, yeah, this is because you don't drive it. <laughs> so... You know what I mean? There's there's even a level of, yeah, you got your nice new fancy truck or car and you don't really want it to get, I don't know, adulterated by the environment, but there is some part of it that you actually have to use it. Mm-hmm. You have to drive the vehicle to prevent further corruption of the vehicle. Yeah. So anyway, it's just an interesting idea. Right. It can be a little bit complicated. Yeah. For sure. So... This is where Lindsay takes us to Old Testament animal sacrifice, animals as sacrificial victims. And I'm going to read his little introduction to this portion, but I think we have a lot to say (laughs) about this topic. So let's see. At this stage, I want to anticipate one major objection to the position I have advanced so far. This objection does not deny that creation has value, even that there are circles of closer proximity to humans within creation, but maintains that it is right that the lower creation should serve the higher creation, as is witnessed in the sacrificial tradition of the Old Testament. At first sight, this objection has considerable force. Is it not true that to some degree, the Old Testament sanctions the use of animals in ways that are instrumental to the spiritual welfare of human beings? Does not God, as revealed by the Old Testament, require sacrifices of animals to appease divine wrath and judgment? So I think we've set it up so that it, it kind of makes sense why he's bringing up Old Testament animal sacrifice, yeah. that, that this is something that has precedence even with our relationship with God, that the lower creation is here to serve and to better the quality of the higher creation existence. So he goes through and kind of describes Old Testament animal sacrifice. But this portion just really got me fired up because even before we started reading Lindsay, we have talked about how we really need to study in depth Old Testament animal sacrifice and its implications for veganism, right? Right. And that there's a lot there that has not been, at least by us or anybody that we're familiar with, has not really been delved into. And just so many things. The the first several times in Scripture that we see animal sacrifice, 
we notice that God does not require it or right. ask for it right. or dictate it. Right. It's part of the ancient Eastern culture, I believe. Absolutely and it a, is. Right. That's so crazy. we know that in the ancient Near East culture, this is what people did to appease their deity, to worship their deity, is they would build an altar and they would kill and sacrifice an animal. And so the people that God called to be in relationship just continued doing it. It was their culture. It was how they showed adoration and worship to God. So this brings in the whole idea of God meeting us where we are, meeting us within our culture and within our paradigms of how we understand the world to work, that God possibly was just meeting the ancient Near Eastern people where they are. And sacrifice was part of that, not necessarily something that God actually requires or wants. Or or even condones. Right. And so there's a lot to talk about there, obviously, because in the Levitical law, it would appear that God does sanction even demand and kind of dictate how it should be done. Right. But what's not talked about within that context, and I really want to study this, for myself. As I understand it, at that time within Levitical law, you could not just go out and kill an animal and eat it. The way that God wanted it done is you bring your animal to the priest who sacrifices it to God before you can consume it. Hmm. So that's interesting, isn't it? Like that if you're going to eat animals, there's this very specific ritualistic way. Yeah. You can't just go do it willy-nilly. Right. Like, it has to be brought to me and, and committed to me, which is something I don't think we talk about, and we don't really unpack the ramifications of that. Also, as I understand it, the Talmud has text that explains that it was on Mount Sinai when Moses was spending time with God that God explained things like kosher, uh, what we know now as kosher slaughter, that God dictated, look, if you're going to kill an animal, this is the least cruel way to do it, and that's how I want you to do it. We know there's all kinds of texts saying, don't eat an animal while it still has his or her lifeblood, right. right? Even things like, don't boil the baby cow in the mother's milk. Like, why would God care about doing things the least cruel way, it would appear to me? I mean, there's just so many things. Right. In the Old Testament, that I think we need to look deeper. At. We definitely need to look deeper. And of course, this gets into some of the difficult passages that we're going to have to discuss. Problem of evil, or just what you're talking about, how can a peaceful God condone any kind of animal sacrifice? And that this also gets into, you know, atonement theory. And mm-hmm. we need to really dive into atonement theory because some now are saying that sacrifice is not required. God can accept atonement without a sacrifice. So that's just, I mean, there's just a lot to discuss. There's a little way a lot to unpack, which we're not going to get to right now. I'm excited, though. This is something that's very interesting to me. And then I love that Lindsay does bring up a few of the many passages in the Old Testament where God basically says, I don't want your sacrifices. Right, I'm tired of it. Why (laughs) Why do you think I need that? Right. And so let me just read some of what Lindsay has here. Within the Jewish tradition, however, the practice of animal sacrifice and its efficacy did not pass without question and protest, quote, 
What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord in the book of Isaiah. I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fed beasts. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. There are a lot of these passages, mm. even, even in the Psalms and definitely throughout the prophets, where mm. God is saying, I don't care. I don't want your sacrifice. Like, why, why would you think I need that? Yeah, how many times is it the passage there? I prefer obedience exactly. to sacrifice. Just stop, stop being evil. Right. Stop. Start doing what I want you to do. Exactly. Yeah. This is where Lindsay starts getting into Christ's sacrifice and how it changes everything in terms of the whole sacrificial system. So he says, very few, if any Christians, however, would find the practice of animal sacrifice acceptable at this present time. He basically says, because they believe that the sacrificial tradition has reached its ultimate point and climax in the sacrifice of Christ, right? I mean, yeah. I, that's definitely consistent with what we've been taught. He, Jesus Christ, in the true sense, offering acceptance and transformation, is our sacrificial victim that leads us to God. It is through him and not through the sacrifices of animals that we are able to find ourselves in our Father's presence. Okay. Mm. We would all agree with that, right? Right. It is this point more than any other that needs to transform the Christian understanding, not only of sacrifice, but of our relationship with the order of creation itself. It is here that we reach a distinctive Christian interpretation. Many theologians have laid great stress upon the transformation of the notion of sacrifice in Christ, but few, if any, have drawn out its radical implications for our relationships with animals. For what is involved in the life of Christ is both a different order and nature of sacrifice. In the first place, the inner logic of the sacrifice of Christ is not the sacrifice of the lower to the higher, but the higher to the lower. The power of God is expressed in the notion of lordship, but the nature of this lordship in the incarnation involves humility, the surrender of absolute power, self-costly loving, a preparedness to suffer, and active compassion toward the weak and the helpless. Hmm. Many strands in the New Testament speak of this, of the condescension, the katabasis, mm -hmm. a Greek term. It's a Greek word, yeah. So this idea of condescension, of God in taking flesh and experiencing for the sake of love the weakness and frailty of the creature. And he says it's not about blood, even though obviously Good Friday was very bloody, but life and love. It is preeminently the sacrifice of God's love for us wrought mysteriously in the acts of incarnation and atonement. So it's, it's not that God demands blood, right? It's the idea of a loving sacrifice for those who need it, a willingness to suffer for the weaker. It's very interesting. And, and I think something else that came up in this book that I think is very valid in terms of the value. I'm really, really interested in this whole concept of the value of creation that doesn't include humans' calculus of what's important and what isn't, everything you were already talking about earlier, but the sense that there, in here he makes this point about God's relationship to animals that we don't fully understand. Hmm. 
know what I mean? There are, there are passages in the biblical text about, you know, God cares for the sparrows, and if he cares for the sparrows, then he's obviously going to care for you. And that might, some, in some sense, create some level of hierarchy by that verse and statement. But not a lot has been written in the biblical text to talk about how much God values animals or in terms of his relationship to the animals. And so who are we to cut off that relationship? Right. Yeah. But yeah, I like what you said. I, I think that is exactly and it's the essence of Lindsay's entire point here. It always comes back to Jesus Christ, the incarnate God and Jesus's example, his moral exemplar for us this whole book, it always comes back to Jesus. Hmm. And so this idea that, okay, if we're if we want to have a Christian understanding of sacrifice, we can no longer ignore the fact that lordship is not about do- domination. Lordship is about self-sacrifice. Lordship is about being willing to suffer for others. Hmm. Self-giving love. Hmm. And so... If that is, and I mean, it, how do you argue against that? That that is the whole point, right, mm-hmm. of Christianity. Then how could we ever justify experimenting on animals for humans' benefit? Right. Well, the other thing that came to mind when I read this, and this is this is just an aside to the whole topic, but when it comes to animal experimentation, like we know that animals are born and bred in an artificial environment, in the laboratory, they never see the light of day in terms of going outside. And that's why we also know when certain organizations set these animals free, they don't really survive well because they're not used to being in the wild. But when it comes to that and factory farming and all of the billions of animals that were breeding artificially, it got me thinking of the eternal state. And the amount of animals and humans and everyone who's ever lived is going to be on the new earth. And I was just thinking about the consequences of the way that we are breeding animals for exploitation, for eating, for pleasure, for experimentation. There are going to be a lot of animals (laughs) on the new earth. It's going to be massive. And it made me even think, huh, is the new earth going to be larger than the current earth. Yeah. I don't know. It was just a thought. Like yeah. there's, there have to be consequences to the way that we're misusing creation here. Right. Right. And that reminds me, I think in the previous chapter, we didn't really touch on it, but he was talking about theodicy, like the justification that, that God is loving and just, even when you look at the problem of evil and someone he quoted said, you have to believe in immortality, even especially for animals in order to have a theodicy because that's the only thing that could bring justice right? is if these animals actually get yeah. a life I to thrive. That. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. And, but think about that though, because we are over creating, over breeding these animals. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Somehow God is going to be able to embrace it all. I guess he's going to have to. So, Lindsay's critique of animal experiments has three main points. He starts out, we are now in a position where we can confront our question directly, practically and morally. 
how should the insight of the worth of creation and of animals in particular help to shape and determine our use of them in science? Three broad conclusions should be reached. Number one, animals are not expendable for humans. This reminded me uh, about a week ago, I saw a scene from the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy sequel. Oh, yeah. Which I have not seen that movie in its entirety. But what I gathered from this scene is that the villain in this movie is a scientist who uh, comes across Rocket the raccoon character. And in this scene, you know, Rocket is in bondage, captive. And the villain is basically saying, oh, just think of all I can learn from you through experimentation. So... Uh, something like I could experiment on you on this less important creature mm. for the benefit of the creatures who actually really matter. So I think it's it's a pretty explicit critique. That movie, you know, is a pretty explicit critique on animal experimentation. Mm. So, which yeah, maybe we should watch that. So <laughs> number two, animals are not instrumental to humans. And this is where this portion is where he actually gets into a little bit of the detail, the specific detail of what's going on. The use of animals for experimentation poses another considerable problem for Christian moralists. For how are we to evaluate the routinized and institutionalized use of millions of animals bred, reared, and destroyed for experimental purposes annually? Even if some use of animals for experimental purposes were justified, how in turn could this justify the whole institutionalized subjugation of animal life for human purposes on such a vast scale? It is not only the scale, but the intention behind such enormous institutional activity that must make us question the disregard for animals implicit in such trade and business. There is an important distinction to be drawn between individual use of animals, sometimes prompted by necessity, and the subjugation of animals on a huge scale on the assumption that they can be used solely for human ends. I have made this point before, but it is one that cannot be made too strongly. It is clear to me that the value of animals as understood from the perspective of Christian doctrine cannot be subordinated, as many scientists appear to believe, at each and every point, to some human good. Number two, animals are not instrumental to humans. In this section, I really like the point he makes that one of the fundamental problems of the scientific endeavor is it always asks the question, what can we do? Hmm. And it never seems to ask the question, what should we do? Right. What are the consequences of doing this? Yeah, we can do it, but how is it going to affect creation? How is it going to affect our lives in the long run? And number three, animals are not to be sacrificed for humans. Yeah, and this this seems like this is where he comes full circle, right? Even though he's talking about animal experimentation and experimenting for the benefit of humans in many ways it's like the old testament animal sacrifice that these experiments 
are serving the benefit of humans, but not really the benefit of the animal. Yeah. Yeah, he brings up the legal ramifications that have been established in our world as recently as 1964 and again in 1975, the Helsinki Declaration that finally made it illegal to do experiments on humans Isn't with, that crazy? Without, their, uh, without their consent, without their understanding. Wow. The idea being it doesn't matter what possible benefits there are to your research. Right. You have to consider the well-being of your subject, and they have to be able to understand what's going to happen and consent. And, of course, animals don't have the ability to consent to what's being done to them in laboratories. So he, I think he's saying we need legal backing to make it illegal, basically, to do these things to animals. Right. And not that the law is sufficient to change humans' hearts and minds, but the law can protect, I think he says in here, the law can protect the most vulnerable from the most wicked experiences. Right. And so that's definitely something that he is in favor of, is getting some law in place. And I also, like he says, a little bit of humility that we should retain. He says, when we reach strongly held principles that are implicitly critical of the actions of our fellow humans, then we always need to look at ourselves and take stock. As for myself, I see no grounds for self-righteousness in this general area of our treatment of animals. Western society is so bound up with the use and abuse of animals in so many fields of human endeavor that it is impossible for anyone to claim that they are not party directly or indirectly, to this exploitation, either through the products they buy, the food they eat, or the taxes they pay. And I would add, if you have investments in a 401k or an IRA or a pension, right. in one way or another, we are supporting these evil practices and these evil companies. So there's blood on all of our hands, right. basically. And so the idea is... Instead of being all self-righteous and think that we're innocent somehow, we need to be humbly trying to stand up and change things. Right. Use our God-given uh, image-bearing capacity yeah. and place, standing, to actually do something for creation here. Right. As we move to a close, I appreciated that Lindsay mentions that all of this, doing this work of theology is precisely that it's a work it's a process it's yeah you know he says at one time and in one place one insight may be pressed to the reduction or exclusion of another for a time one vital insight may be lost or buried under erroneous interpretation theology is ever working towards holding together a range of insights the full development of which always lies in the future. As one theologian wrote as early as 1977, and the theologian he's quoting here is W.H. Vanstone, in the past, theology has often been slow to respond to new points of insight and sensitivity. Though later, both its own vision and its own heart have been enlarged by them. 
to sensitivity, for instance, about the iniquity of slavery and the rights of colored people. Perhaps the theology of our own age will be convicted of myopia if it does not spend serious reflection upon the new kind of reverence for nature which is appearing among us. The present seems an opportune time for reflection, for the wholly anthropocentric theology of the last 15 to 20 years has clearly run out of inspiration and is degenerating towards triviality. Wow. That's quite a quote. And the fact that that was written in 1977 by this, what, W.H. Vanstone. I think the book was called The Being of Nature or something like that. I looked it up in the footnotes. That is pretty remarkable. Right. And I mean, it, it makes me a little sad. Like he even acknowledges, it seems like theology or theologians or AKA maybe the church, you yeah. know, by extension, yeah. we're always playing catch up with the rest of culture. Yeah. And I'm kind of like, isn't it supposed to be the other way around? Right. Aren't we supposed to be leading the charge towards greater love and greater mercy and greater justice and greater, why is it that the rest of the culture might be the first to be like, yeah, slavery's wrong, and then the church catches up eventually. Right. Well, I think, too, reading this book, Andrew Lindsay's Animal Theology, I keep thinking about all of our theologies, how they need basically need to be reworked because they're so anthropocentric. And imagine if they were holistic and included everything, every part of God's creation, what if we were to rewrite all of our systematic theologies with that in mind? I don't know. I just keep having that thought. Right. And the fact that this was written in 1977, and yet here we are, we're still, at least you and I come from a tradition that's very anthropocentric. Yeah. Still. Yeah. It's remarkable how far we haven't come <laughs> So finally, his conclusion, I, I want to conclude, he says, but basically, I like how he ends this. He says, too many moralists in the animal field, myself included, eager to delineate some minimum moral status for animals in the hope of protecting them from some unnecessary ill, have failed to lay before themselves the full positive weight of the value of creation. To recognize the value of creation, we have not only to prevent evil, but also to promote good. Therefore, in each and every situation, we must ask what good our presence can bring, what care, aid, and protection we can offer to the created world. So this idea like, is, yes, absolutely, we definitely need to continue to fight against the evil that is occurring, but also we need to be developing a positive vision right. of what things could be, of what humans could be towards animals. And that's, that's pretty cool. Right. I think it's, uh, we keep using the word Christian imagination and using our Christian imaginations to envision a world that is more holistic and robust and includes all of creation. I mean, that's kind of what our jobs are as creators, as co-creators with God, as viceroys, as image bearers, really our job is to include all of creation and think of ways to incorporate and help all of creation thrive mm. towards the new creation. 
kind of in this, what we've talked about, the living in the already not yet. We're living in the already not yet. And it's our job to bring the fulfillment, help to bring the fulfillment of the new creation here into the present until the end. So a lot in this chapter, a lot that I feel like a few things we didn't discuss that are interesting to consider. And um, you listener, you can always pick up a copy of Andrew Lindsay's Animal Theology. It's quite a remarkable work. Yeah. Yeah, very inspiring. Yeah. I'm glad we're reading it. Me too. Love it. All right. Well, hey, thank you for listening. Yes. Thanks for hanging in there with us, everybody, and see you next time. Later.